Welcome to the Texas Conflict Coach radio program. If you've ever experienced or engaged in destructive or unresolved conflict, then you know it leads to broken relationships, distrust, and damaging results. Our program will help you manage and resolve conflict effectively with strategies, valuable resources, and support. Since 2009, our radio program hosted guest experts from around the globe sharing their perspectives, experiences, and expertise while giving you food for thought. If you can't listen live, then download and listen to any of our 300-plus podcasts in our library at TexasConflictCoach.com. So sit back, relax, or join the conversation every Tuesday evening, or tweet us at TXConflictCoach. the Texas Conflict Coach. We're a division of Conflict Connections, Inc., based in San Antonio, Texas. And our show focuses on empowering you to move through conflict early and constructively. Now, we'll do this by providing consumer education and conversation to help reflect, build self-awareness, practice skills, and learn about resources and tools to manage conflict effectively in your everyday lives. We will look at all types of conflict from issues in the workplace, family conflict, elder and adult conflict, disputes in schools, neighborhoods, communities, churches, you name it, we're going to talk about it here on this show. Now, we can be found at www.texas, that's T-E-X-A-S, conflictcoach.com. And we invite you to become a fan of the show on Facebook by clicking on the Facebook link on our show page. Now, are you a parent of a college student or an educator at a university? Or maybe you're a student who's gotten into a little trouble on your campus. And this show is for you. We will be talking with our guests Nancy Giacomimi and Jennifer Schrag about reframing campus conflict. We invite you, our listeners, to call in at this number, 347-324-3591, with questions or comments. Now, just indicate by pressing the number one key that you would like to join the conversation. Now, for our Blog Talk Radio registered users, the chat room is open, and you can pose your question or comments uh, to Nancy or Jennifer there as well. Now, let's talk a little bit um, about Nancy and Jennifer, our guest. And um, first of all, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. Uh, and um, well, why don't you tell us a little bit, uh, each of you, a little bit about yourselves? Jennifer, you have a preference? <laughs> Sure, I, I can go first. Um, I am currently the director for the Office of Student Conflict Resolution at the University of Michigan. Uh, I've been doing conflict resolution work for about 10 years, and in that time I've been an attorney, I've been a consultant, and um, I've described myself as an administrator with a law degree, and it's been in more recent years that I've uh, really embraced my identity as an educator. And so that brought me on the path to co-editing this book with Nancy um, to really uh, change the conversation around conduct on campus and reframe it, if you will. All right, excellent. Thank you very much, Jennifer, for joining us. And Nancy, what about yourself? Thanks. I uh, Let's see, I'm here in Chester County, Pennsylvania. I'm a mediator, facilitator, and uh, as Jennifer um, said, an educator as well. And um, prior to... Um, Prior to my present role, I worked at the University of Delaware for a number of years in campus discipline and later moved over to the conflict, uh, conflict uh, resolution program on campus where I finished my doctorate degree and worked um, in a number of different ways, uh, but worked as a mediator uh, for special education disputes with the state, um, also facilitated dialogue throughout the state. And um, I've been fortunate while working independently to stay involved with higher education through the Association for Student Conduct Administration, which is how Jennifer and I came to meet. Okay, very good. So, you know, so then you met. So how is it that you came about partnering as editors of your new book? And this book is called Reframing Campus Conflict. So how did you end up partnering about this? And um, why don't we start there? Okay. I, I could start by simply saying that we, I guess we became acquainted back um, 
preparing for the 2008 Summer Academy of the Association for Student Conduct Administration, and um, some colleagues had become familiar with Jennifer's work at the University of Michigan. Um, I was in the role, as I presently am, with coordinating our faculty members for the conflict resolution and mediation and restorative justice parts of that Summer Academy. And so Jennifer uh, was selected as, as one of a handful of um, national experts and faculty from around the country. And she and her colleague, um, whom I know that she'll talk a bit about, Monita Thompson from Michigan, came and as part of our four-day um, conflict specialist program, which was new in 2008, she introduced the spectrum um, that we'll talk about during the show. Um, spectrum of conflict resolution um, and how to apply less formal ways to resolve conflict on campus than we've um, we've as administrators become accustomed to using. Um, by that I mean that over many years we have shaped campus discipline when students get in trouble um, on campuses um, in a pretty uh, pretty similar way across the country. Um, a lot of what we do, the models that we um, use are shaped by um, cases that have gone bad and ended up setting legal precedent. Um, there are um, some national mandates that uh, educators and administrators are required to follow uh, to provide what has become called due process for students who get in trouble. Um, but all through the past many decades that these models have been shaped, uh, people like Jennifer and I and a lot of other great colleagues who collaborated on this book um, have continued to teach and preach and practice um, conflict resolution at its lowest levels, mediation, restorative justice, et cetera. So that, um, I, that, that's kind of how it came to be that we worked together, got excited together, shared a lot of passion and ESP around um, what reframing campus conflict might look like. And at the close of our 2008 program, Jennifer said in so many words, we should write a book. And so we did. Well, okay, so you said something about, um, you know, dealing with conflict at its lowest levels. So when you're, as, you, as we start to delve in deeper to why write a book on reframing campus conflict, also address what you meant by that. So why write this book? Um, why don't we go a little deeper into that question? Okay, and I wonder, well, Jennifer, do you want to pick up on that? Sure, sure. And I think this, you know, Nancy gave a nod to Monita, and I think, um, you know, her voice is very much a part of this book and a part of this conversation in spirit, if not um, present right now in this um, this conversation that we're having today. Uh, Monita is the co-director of the program on intergroup relations, and at the time that she and I worked together to deliver um, with Nancy and other colleagues at the Academy uh, last summer, uh, we got together to really think about how, um, and at that time, um, pardon me, uh, Monita was the mm -hmm. director, interim director of the Multi-Ethnic Student Affairs Office. And so she and I really got together to articulate in a way that folks can understand some of the work we've been doing here at Michigan that um, brought together this idea, um, as Nancy mentioned, that conflict resolution methods might be a more effective and educational educational approach and how that is tethered to and very much a part of um, honoring the spectrum of identities that are on this camp on on any given campus um, and so really thinking about diversity and in, in every sense of the word all of the social identities that are present on any given campus today we know that we have more students of color than ever before we know that we have more women in college um, than ever before we know we have um, more students with disabilities than ever before mm -hmm. and so really honoring that we have a spectrum of needs on campus and so we should honor that by offering a spectrum of resolution options and so really why this book and why reframe campus conflict will really to expand our paradigm and our continuum of options to honor all of the needs on campus and live into the full spectrum of our abilities to, to meet those needs. And just to play off of that, I know folks that are tuning in will have a chance to look at the book or maybe look at the spectrum, but I think what Monita and Jennifer were able to do two years ago, which got our field kind of re-energized and re-excited, really, is to give us a visual um, and 
frame the work that a lot of us were valuing, but, but doing small scale across the country. So again, as I think I said, a lot of schools have tried to put mediation programs together. Who Some of them have done a very successful job, others um, kind of uneven success. But what was nice and got colleagues excited two years ago uh, was was to see it all in one place in a model that made sense to people, and that was Monita, Monita and um, Jennifer's spectrum. And uh, underneath it, which got me re-excited in, in the field, was that it finally kind of named the why, because, again, a lot of us believed in conflict resolution and mediation and restorative justice, uh, which has also been growing over the years in higher education. But I don't know that anybody... Um, put it all together the same way that University of Michigan and Monita and Jennifer did. And that's that the, the why had to do with what Jennifer just said, which is there are so many different kinds of people and needs on campus and kinds of conflict. We'll probably talk a little bit about some examples of things that go on in a couple of minutes. Uh, that, that a one-size-fits-all model of dealing with all those different things that can cross an administrator's desk just really wasn't wasn't working or wasn't the best practice um, and surely wasn't wasn't as um, the best model to meet everybody's needs and to make sure that everybody was being heard and being treated fairly and um, effectively. And um, so that, that, I think, has really been the value of the model, to, to kind of put that why of, of um, fairness and inclusion and social justice theory, if you will, um, into the other language that we educators have been using for all these years in terms of student development and education and community um, has, has really started to make a difference in a short amount of time. So before we actually get into the spectrum and some examples, what are you finding was happening now, um, well, or maybe in the past, really? Because really, the things that were happening on campus in the past, and how y'all, how universities were handling uh, student conflict, discipline issues, problems, um, is was really what's prompting some of this paradigm change, as you mentioned, of going uh, and offering different conflict resolution models. Uh, so what was happening in the past that y'all were unsatisfied with that has prompted moving in this direction? Can you, and, and maybe use a, an example as, uh, as you talk. Okay. Well, I think um, structural determinism um, is very much a part of the conversation. And, and what I mean when I say that is that we had a set of structures in place that determined ahead of time that we would formalize anything that crossed the threshold of our office. So because the only... And, and Nancy uses mm -hmm. this in one of the chapters that she wrote, if all you have is a hammer, then you tend to see everything as a nail. And so because we, you know, especially new professionals coming into the field, because they so um, desired to have clarity and structure and, and they only had one policy to look to, to to get their brain around how to manage an incident, it would instantaneously become formalized and framed as a violation. And so you, from there, um, you, you respond in a way that implements um, a more authoritarian, structured approach to engaging a situation. And that was problematic on several levels, primarily from an educational perspective, because if all one does is come in and then sit through some sort of court-like experience with their attorney often, mm -hmm. and, and you have a lot of um, formality around the conflict, um, you don't get to have the larger contextual conversation with the student, and they don't get to really fully engage all of the perspectives of those involved and impacted by a conflict. And so it was problematic from an educational perspective, but it was also problematic from an access perspective or an inclusion perspective. When we think about diversity and we think about how different cultures respond to conflict, how different marginalized communities communities, those that may not be part of the dominant culture, um, may not take a um, competitive or adversarial approach to conflict, their desire to engage your student conduct office or engage the services available to them, well, that would dwindle because why would they start a process that didn't resonate with how they wanted to um, be a part of a resolution process? So if, if all we have to offer them is a very formal structure, adjudication, black, white, adversarial, win-lose, well, then we're not going to get 
everybody coming to our doorstep and um, providing access to them. And then those who do come in because they're forced to, because they're responding to an allegation that's been made against them, how comfortable are they through the process and what are they learning from the process um, if it is so alien to them or uncomfortable or unjust. And so I think for me um, and, and for Nancy too, and Nancy, you, if you want to expand on sure. that, you know, we really felt strongly and, and certainly in the work that I did with Monita and looking at what U of M um, put forward as a, a new approach and experiment was really to try and um, challenge that and, and offer something new. It, you know, and Nancy, when you as you start to uh, add, do for for listeners here, mm -hmm. I want to make sure because we have some folks who are just coming on now. What kind of student violations are you talking about? Because um, when you talk about adjudication and the real formal structure, uh, and it feels very legalese, the attorneys coming in. Are we talking about students who's, who've broken the law? Or are we talking about other types of violations as well? Just to put some context. Yeah, I, I I could start, which is where I wanted to piggyback on what Jennifer just said. Where it, 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 all, all schools in in some shape or form, well, almost all schools, universities and colleges in some shape or form have what we know as a code of conduct. So most schools will communicate their expectations um, or shared expectations, what's what students should expect of the college or university and what the institution expects of the students. And so what that often looks like in a traditional code would be uh, inclusive of what an alcohol um, expectation or policy is, what a campus expects around the issue of cheating and plagiarism, um, it, 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 all the things that you find at the community at large, um, violence, damage, sexual assault, um, drug use, weapons. Um, those are all things, you know, campuses are kind of small microcosms of what's going on in, in the general community. And so all those things that a criminal process and a police force in a community might deal with, campus administrators and security officers or police officers on campus uh, are dealing with similar things. Now, sometimes a student can be um, documented or referred to a to an administrator in an office to to deal with a code violation or a uh, a violation of law, uh, and sometimes that violation or that conflict or conduct issue is going to be handled just within the campus community, and that and that's that's um, um, perfectly acceptable, perfectly um, appropriate. But there are also um, crimes that a student commit, can commit that might overlap with a code violation. And so it really, you know, we'll, we'll give you a couple of examples in a few, again in a few minutes, but it really is dependent on the situation, where an incident happened, um, whether or not a, a law has been broken versus a conduct violation. Uh, but, but I think the things that a traditional campus uh, handles very frequently would involve underage um, use of alcohol and, and other substances. Um, cheating would be unique to a campus community and those sorts of things. And I wanted to start with those and then have, have Jennifer come back because she, I think they've got a real um, interesting model kind of situation at the University of Michigan that I think a lot of institutions can learn from. But one of the things I was going to piggyback on what she had said earlier was that in addition to wanting to be inclusive and to make sure that systems aren't structured in such a way that uh, you start at one end and you know what the outcome is going to be before you've even, you know, been able to fully participate, um, is Which that being fair? Part, right, just being fair. Is that I I think increasingly, and I don't have um, stats to back it up, but I but I can um, share after our broadcast um, some places where there is now suggestion and research that the um, judicially tailored uh, processes and the strict um, sanctions that often came out of those adjudication models over the years where institutions felt like and, uh, and the direction that our processes were going was that we need to get tougher. We need to let students know what the rules are. We need to go to what became known as, unfortunately, a three strikes you're out kind of a thing where you get, you get documented or referred to a disciplinary office once, you get X, you get it twice, you get another sanction, and the third time you're removed from the institution. Uh, a lot of, not all schools did that, but a lot of schools went to that kind of a strict um, policy, standard policy. Um, a number of schools have honor codes or very strict um, 
black and white, if you will, uh, standards on sanctioning for dishonesty. And I'm not saying those are right or wrong, good or bad, but I think what's beginning to happen is the information is now starting to come in that suggests that that's not working the way we as educators hoped it would work either, that in fact alcohol and drug use, I believe I'm accurate in saying, has not gone down in a college-age traditional community, that academic dishonesty uh, numbers have not been discouraged because of, you know, an automatic suspension or expulsion from a university when you cheat. So I think as educators, we're all beginning as a, as a collective, I guess, to, to start to ask the questions or go back to where we started from, which is as educators and knowing what we know about students in a traditional age range, if that's not working and being rigid and black and white um, isn't working, then what else could we bring to the table and bring to the mix that would draw students in? and be more equitable and fair, but also be more tailored to the specific needs of a situation and a, and a student. And I think well, what one behavioral trend I think that I would add to what Nancy has shared is also a spike or a, you know, a prevalence of allegations of harassment between students. Mm -hmm. So yeah. you, you have students who, and she mentioned developmental phases, that you have students who come in, an 18-year-old who is experiencing a conflict and labeling it and, and truly experiencing it as what they would call harassment. Well, one way to do that would be to, to label it harassment. It comes in as a allegation or a violation of harassment and therefore then triggers a disciplinary process and has one exiting with a discipline record. Well, with a, a spectrum model, you can take, for example, this trend in harassment and or harassment allegations and, and really uh, pull apart um, so that you can set aside those where it may be or may not be, who knows, mutual harassment between two students, but they can engage in a mediation, um, either in separate, you know, in a shuttle kind of diplomacy environment or directly sitting across from each other um, to learn and understand from one another and, and exit, and we've experienced this, um, friends or, you know, with a future relationship um, intact. In right. And, and just like um, we value in a mediation community in general and um, is on your website as well, Patty, is that uh, the spectrum in, in using these different types of um, least to most formal models of resolving a conflict is that what we're advocating, and, and we're not alone, uh, of course, we've got a lot of great colleagues standing with us, is that if given the chance, like on Jennifer's example, you know, if, if given a chance to be empowered as students to make a decision, oh, you know, I'm feeling or involved in this conflict, I... Uh, before it blows up, I'd like to know that I might resolve it at a different level than filing a formal complaint, going through a formal adjudication process. So the responsibility, the, the power, the decision-making is, is all still placed in the hands of the people, the folks that are in the conflict. Um, and I think what's nice at Michigan and what we're hoping to begin to see happen more and more across the country is that administrators and institutions begin to... Um, fill their toolboxes, we like to say, you know, develop their toolboxes so that we're not simply great um, due process people who can run a really good, you know, campus discipline meeting, but we also become really good at being um, conflict coaches or be really good at knowing who on campus are trained to be um, mediators in a way that would um, value everybody's voices and allow for conflicts to be resolved before they have to be, you know, deferred down down a, a more formalized um, pathway. So you're already really somewhat starting uh, to talk about the spectrum. Why don't we highlight what your spectrum is, and um, and I think it would be helpful if you can to put into context of take a student conflict for example, and what would be the impact if they were to do certain processes in this spectrum? And I think um, when you were talking about the lowest level uh, of conflict, meaning, uh, in other words, when you're, you're in the conflict, like you said, Nancy, so that it doesn't escalate, that it empowers that student to still be part of the decision-making, as you said, as part of the problem-solving, as part of the acknowledging their part in it. So they still have a very active role. So who would like to begin to start uh, sh kind of showing the big picture of this spectrum here? 
I'll go ahead and uh, speak to it. Um, if you can picture in your mind's eye a continuum, and on the left end of that continuum is informal, and all the way to the right is formal, um, and then place upon that continuum several doorways or pathways across it. On your left end, you would have your most informal um, conflict resolution methods, and on your right end, you would have your most formal. And so running across that spectrum or continuum, on the left hand, uh, left hand side, you'd have no conflict management where administration decides, you know what, this is an ideal situation to allow students to kind of flounder in the conflict and, and intentionally administrators would choose not to engage in any formal way and so not manage the conflict in any way because we don't have any concerns of safety. We actually feel from a developmental perspective it's better for this student group to debate and engage in this conflict around how much to sell their T-shirts for. Um, we're not going to dive in and rescue or um, formalize any sort of conflict management in that situation. Um, moving towards the center, administration decides to be more involved or offer a little bit more structure. And so moving again from the left end to the right, then you have conflict coaching where um, a student comes to, say, the conduct or conflict office, and um, they're wanting to figure out how to solve their problem. They don't want any inter administrator intervention in any formal way. They just want some help and, and or the administrator can guide them on how to empower, and empower them on how to, to handle this conflict on their own in a more um, constructive way. Um, moving towards the center, you have in the center pathways pathways or resolution methods like facilitated dialogue or mediation, and a facilitated dialogue would be exactly what it sounds like. Administrators are the facilitators of a dialogue, so they're involved in the conflict but simply as facilitators. They're not telling students what to do, they're just providing some structure for them to have a conversation. And similar to that, of course, is mediation, which would be where it's not just about a conversation, it's about a future story in terms of figuring out a game plan on where to go and solve a problem or come to an agreement. And so that's more towards the center. Towards the right, then, you'd have, um, you know, these more traditional forms of um, adjudication under a conduct code where you have a complaint, you have a response, you have um, a set of meetings that occur, you have a possibly all the way to the right, a formal hearing that occurs where a third party now, administrator isn't just the facilitator, the administrator is the decider or some sort of voice from the community where the, actually the third party is deciding what to do about the conflict. And so that would be all the way to the right. So to use an example of what, how, this path, how these pathways might be used or how this spectrum is relevant to conduct work on campus, you take a look at, say, you know, we talked about this trend in harassment on campus. Um, take your probably any given weekend at any college campus to take a fact pattern where um, some students uh, engage in a heated debate um, that escalates to an argument that escalates to perhaps a tussle. Um, and let's say the, this group of students, you have students who are from the Arab American Student Association and those from the um, uh, Jewish American Student Association. Uh, there's a tussle, there's allegations of harassment back and forth to one another. What do we do with that? An old model that only offers adjudication under a conduct code and a set of structures then that feed into that would have, well, we're going to meet with each person individually. They're going to get a notice of some sort. They're going to be charged with a violation because, after all, we had a tussle. So, oh, wait, is that physical assault? And so suddenly we've escalated this conflict and formalized it and named it and labeled what had occurred in a way that now we'll have perhaps all of these students exiting with discipline records um, and maybe not a whole heck of a lot of learning. With a spectrum menu, and with a set of structures that complement that menu and allow you to explore other options with these students and a system that ensures um, the ability to um, preserve what, what, what I call magic real estate, that space before we name it, before we call it a violation, before it's a complaint, that, that magical space for an educational moment. If we can just talk to these students and give them a menu and say, hey, in terms of what happened here, would you be interested in, here's your menu, you can, you could do a facilitated dialogue, you could do a mediation. Well, 
it may be, it may possibly be that in that situation we have a lot of the students take us up on that and rather than filing complaints against each other and talking to a bunch of parents and attorneys and going to a hearing, what we have is a group of students coming into a nicely structured safe space where we're facilitating a dialogue and creating understanding or perhaps it's a mediation where they actually want to come up with an agreement or perhaps it's what we call a restorative justice circle which is a different version of a mediation where they would all talk about who was affected. We'd have actually the larger community perhaps represented in that circle where we'd have the RA who was affected by that or the custodian, the residence assistant, you okay. know, the, the student staff member who had to come and, and respond to that situation or the custodian who had to clean up after the, there was this tussle and maybe um, other people who were um, affected by it come into that circle to talk about how they were affected by it and everybody together talk about now how do we right that wrong, how do we fix what happened, how do we restore this community and move forward as a group. So that can be a very powerful experience. And so it sets aside labeling as a violation. It sets aside um, the formalism and the legalities of it all and just allows, you know, again, assuming that you set up a solid system that has people entering into these pathways in a way that they understand their rights and, and um, we've done our hard work ahead of time, but it gets them into a space where we can all just talk. I think that is so awesome. I mean, um, you know, because for the longest time, I, you know, because I've worked on the university campuses, and Nancy and I have worked together uh, at the University of Delaware many years ago, and um, and I, you know, at the different universities uh, and colleges uh, that I did initial research on uh, way back when, um, is that, you know, these types of things, uh, when you talked about mediation, conflict coaching, they'd almost be like standalone programs, you know, that was, uh, either uh, supported by the, one of the student groups, but it certainly wasn't um, implemented or necessarily supported uh, by the stu student judicial system. So to me, this sounds like a really big shift uh, where a campus is like your, your, uh, the University of Michigan campus is embracing the spectrum and offering this as part of the student judicial system versus just, oh, here's an opportunity over here, but it's really not connected. So to me, that's a really big shift in the in, in And I guess my question then is, are other universities really embracing this? I mean, I think this is going to be a great book and a great resource for other university campuses, but what are you finding about the trends so that anyone listening to this can say, you know what, I need to go to my university and find out what, what options are available for me? Well, I think, um, and, and Nancy can speak to uh, some of her interactions and our interactions with folks who contributed to the book, because we did actually in the book, we have an entire chapter devoted to programs from across the country, and so I think um, she she can speak to that. But what I would what I would say is, I feel like my phone is ringing off the hook in terms of, you know, Nancy and I uh, were asked by the Association for Student Conduct Administration, which I think in and of itself is symbolic, to come in as featured speakers at the conference this past February and talk about what it means to offer conflict resolution um, as part of and as a normalized uh, predominant pathway in an adjudication system. Um, what does it mean to offer those CR options, conflict resolution options, as kind of the first go-to? And then, and then also, what does that mean with doing it with a social justice lens um, through the spectrum of resolution options? And so I think the fact that that was a centerpiece at the conference um, I think is a testament in and of itself. But then I think about all of the phone calls that I've gotten since that time. I know Nancy similarly has had an experience um, in, in that way. I think it's an idea whose time has come, or its time has come. It just makes sense. And so I think whether or not it's the dominant paradigm right now, um, I, I, I think kindred spirits who, who, who have been through mediation training or understand how powerful conflict resolution work is, um, it will just take a matter of time before this is the way it is. And Nancy, what would you add to that? Well, well I, I, a couple of things that we did, I, I really enjoyed, um, as we were putting the book together, we did put one of the chapters together, um, referencing and bringing in some samples from other universities of what they're doing around um, these, these themes of a spectrum. I haven't heard of another institution that has called, um, called their program a 
spectrum model, if you will. Um, but again, I think I think the context that Monita and Jennifer have been able to give the work that a lot of schools have been flirting with over these many years is what's getting people excited. And I wouldn't be surprised if we started to see schools begin to take this model and develop it into into a model that fits their campus culture, whether they call it a spectrum or call it you know menu of options, what, what, what conflict uh, conflict um, options. Um, I think institutions will find their own name for it. But one of the things I can say is that um, already over the last couple of years, um, not because of our work so much as all the other colleagues around the country who've been um, equally invested in mediation and restorative justice over these many years, is that a number of offices are changing their names. Adjudication offices have begun changing their names. So even I think if any of us were to do a search <clears throat> over the last 10 years, let's say, on how language has started to change in our judicial field on college campuses, we would start to see that many of us have started to rename our our um, offices so that they're not either they're not simply judicial offices or they're not judicial offices at all anymore. They're rather, you know, conduct and conflict resolution offices. Mm -hmm. And actually one resource that we didn't name that we probably should is that um, we've had a model code in our field for a number of years. Um, and uh, this uh, model code uh, it has recently been um, revised in 2004 by Ed Stoner and John Lowry. And one of the things that they um, kind of foreshadowed for us was this change in language around a judicial model so that the original authors of the code, and now in 2004, um, they've revised it to say that really um, colleges and universities should be should create models and, and systems that don't mirror criminal language like we've become accustomed to, so that they're changing the office names from judicial to conflict and conduct, so that instead of guilty and not guilty, we're, we're dealing with students in terms of their responsibility to a community. Um, so that that change really was pretty pronounced or foreshadowed back in 2004 by um, by our colleagues Ed Stoner and John Lowry. Uh, but but I but I think a lot of institutions since then and and through our work, <clears throat> Jennifer's and mine and and you Michigan and the other um, colleagues that work with us here over the last year and a half. Um, has begun to take it forward and not just change the names and the trappings of an office, but started, as I said earlier, to build up those toolboxes where now colleagues are coming and spending four and five days, excuse me, at, at a, um, a mediation or restorative justice or a conflict specialist training sponsored by an association like the Association for Student Conduct Administration. And they're investing their time and their dollars so that they have people who were previously trained up through educational programs or through certificate programs to do um, discipline. And now they're coming back not just with those disciplinary skills, but also knowing how to um, conduct a mediation or conduct a restorative justice circle. Um, I'm a little hesitant to name names because I'm afraid if I name a school or two that's doing a really good job, I'm going to leave somebody else out. Um, but there are very good institutions out there who have who have begun to build up, especially mediation programs, conflict coaching programs, and restorative justice programs. I think in particular. Uh, you mentioned restorative justice a number of times. Could you just briefly define that for our listeners? Well, I'll take a shot at it. Sure. Um, I Really, uh, using a restorative lens is first thinking about um, not a punitive approach, uh, but how do we restore everybody involved in an incident? And that includes perhaps the person who may be responsible for the conduct. And so using a restorative lens um, honors that. A restorative justice practice, maybe a circle or a conference or a board, it can take all sorts of different um, versions or um, approaches, uh, but a, a type of restorative practice would then therefore um, conduct the um, experience for the students in a way that puts in the middle of the room, okay, first, what's the harm that's been done? Let's all kind of agree around what's been done, who's been impacted, and then let's talk about that and fully give voice to that and honor that, and then let's talk about 
how do we restore that harm? And okay. and then the philosophical underpinning being that everybody is harmed um, by conflict and um, and this type of you know con or a conduct issue. And so therefore, how do how do we restore everybody that's been involved in it rather than punish or be punitive? All right. Thank you very very much. That was very helpful. Good. So we're going to start to transition here in. Um, I guess the last question I have here is, you know, what are some things that uh, you might, uh, that is a takeaway, either whether it's an educator who's listening to the show, uh, maybe it's a parent uh, or one of the college students who might be listening, but what are some takeaways um, uh, to help them if they're in this situation of dealing with student conflict on campus? Okay. Well, I, I might start by... Um I guess just suggesting and, and actually playing off of something that Jennifer recognized at the last uh, academy that we did for this association uh, for Student Conduct Administration, which is I was in a room um, as part of faculty with um, mid-level um, practitioners, and Jennifer and colleagues um, were part of a small faculty for um, the larger part of the program with, with, with more of the entry-level folks. And what Jennifer and her colleagues pointed out was she felt, and Jennifer add on, um, but her observation was that some of the folks newer to our profession are coming out of programs that are speaking increasingly in the language that we're using in this book. So they seem to be, through their academic programs, more familiar with social justice theory alongside of developmental theory, alongside of um, student development theory, um, whereas in the room I was in with with people who have been practicing for some time longer, I don't believe many of us, certainly not all of us, came up through the same kind of experiences academically with learning about what it means to be socially just, what it means to um, resolve conflict at the lowest levels. And, and so I just thought that was an interesting observation that Jennifer made, um, but, it, but it's a lead-in to what I guess my takeaway might suggest, which is I think schools and certainly individuals in administrative positions at schools uh, and in academic programs are familiar with what we're putting together within this model in, in our book and, and reframing campus conduct. And I think even if um, students, parents, educators are at institutions that you can't easily go to their website and click a, you know, look for conflict resolution, mediation, conflict coaching, and can't readily find it, that if you know enough to at least walk into an office, pick up a phone, go, in, go into an academic department, and begin to ask the question of, gee, how, you know, how might I, I've got the situation, how might I resolve it? Um, I've heard about mediation, where do I find that? I've heard about some conflict coaching, I need help with that. I'm hopeful and thinking that um, many institutions would be able to help a student or a, a family or a parent in that situation find somebody that's going to be um, talking the same language or offering things that would be more supportive uh, to their situation than just a formal um, disciplinary system or practice. And what I would add to that is if if they're not coming back um, from those conversations satisfied, meaning the institution has not fully embraced or under or or is throwing back kind of this well we don 't want to get sued. this is the way we do things. Mm -hmm. Part of why we did this book was to empower new excited professionals in the field who understand as as Nancy mentioned the social justice element to this and understand the um, educational aspect to this and embrace it, empower them when they're going to senior administrators and vice presidents with a book that says, look, scholars, educators, lawyers from across the country get this. They endorse it and support it. And the Association for Student Conduct Administration embraces this. We can do this, and here's how we do it. And so I think it might empower, you know, an activist student on a campus or a parent who is not satisfied with what what they're being offered as options to to help their student on a college campus um, to empower them with some very real, um, uh, robust um, information and um, scholarship. Okay. Excellent. Well, this has been a great conversation. I wish our time wasn't almost up, but this has been a wonderful conversation. It's it's also very um, 
of uplifting to know that universities are moving in this direction and that there's actually being research done on it. Um, so I'm excited to hear uh, about that trend. Uh, are there any uh, closing comments that either of you have and also include uh, how can people contact you, best way to contact you? Well, I am available on LinkedIn. I do. I've, I've become that technically adept that I, at least I have <laughs> an account on LinkedIn, and that you can search me for Jennifer Schrage, S C H R A G E, and then also, of course, there's my email address here at the University of Michigan, which is jschrage at umich.edu. Umich meaning U M I C H dot edu. Okay, great. And any other closing comments that you had, Jennifer? Um, I just would say um, that get the book, um, push the get the book, push the paradigm. Um, uh, alternative resolutions are more appropriate resolutions. And for parents and kids to get actively involved in, in the sense of you know that self awareness piece that you were talking about, um, pick up the phone, find out what those options are for them so that they can be actively involved in trying to figure out how they're going to resolve that. Yeah. Nancy. Yeah, sure. Um, folks can reach me. I know you'll prob probably post this, but um, if you can uh, reference my name on whatever's published out there through Patty, um, my contact is simply Nancy Giacomini at Yahoo. I don't know if you need me to spell that or not, Patty. Yes, go ahead and spell okay, your last name. Okay, well, it's all one, so N-A-N-C-Y-G-I-A-C-O-M-I-N-I, Nancy Giacomini at Yahoo, and um, I'd, I'd be very excited to um, to be contacted by anybody who's equally excited about this work. I, I agree with um, with Jennifer, of course. We've had a lot of fun putting this book together with uh, so many different colleagues that we haven't been able to thank or name, but um, if they tune in uh, later on, um, we certainly would like them to know how much we appreciate their input. Um, we don't all share philosophies. We don't all share... Uh, you know, the way we come at these different um, ideas that we've expressed today. Um, but, but as a group, we do value just the opportunity to, di to dialogue around the change. And I think fundamentally we all agree that as educators what we're going after is um, running and, and um, producing fair, equitable systems for the students that, that find their way to our colleges and universities. And it's really wonderful and exciting after all these years of being in the field of higher education and then leaving and doing um, more work more heavily related to conflict resolution that I've been invited and have found my way back into um, an area of higher education that um, is, after all these years, really, really moving very rapidly in the direction of, of conflict resolution and, um, and the pathways that we've talked about. Awesome. I've loved uh, seeing your journey, Nancy, over the years. <laughs> <laughs> Funny how things um, come around. <laughs> I know. Um, all right, so now, Jennifer, you had two uh, links. Uh, they are on the show page. Um, can you um, give what the links are and what they are? Sure. Um, one of those links, www. <laughs> I didn't know I was going to be. Um, it's it's a link to our um, our office website. So one of those is, uh, I think it's www.oscar.com umich.edu or something right. like that. Right. It's .oscr.umich.edu, and that's a direct link to your office? Yes, yes, the Office of Student Conflict Resolution here at uh, Michigan. And will that also show the spectrum? Uh, do, we, do you have that up on the website? We don't have it up there. We did have an undergraduate intern who um, came to me midway through the year because we know these students are always smarter than us and said, hey, you know, you're doing this spectrum stuff. Why don't we put it on our website? And so we do have that in the works. We've just we've not put it up there quite yet, um, but it is in the book. Okay. And then the and other one is the Association for Student Conduct. Administration. how you say it right? It's ASCA. That's right. That's right. Oh, so, it's, so it's www.the, ca.org, uh, and people would go to this site for what reason? Well, if, they, if they want to get any information about the association, uh, ASCA is the um, 
I, I, really the primary and premier association for colleagues and folks interested in working within student conduct administration. So I don't want to misquote our numbers, but I want to say we have upwards towards 1,700, 1,800 members, uh, individual members across the country and internationally who um, share resources, come together for professional development, um, attend our summer academy, uh, which is really one of a kind each, each year. And um, if you simply go to theasca.org, um, folks can read up about who we are and, and what we have to offer um, or who they might contact if they need a resource around this, this area of campus conflict and conduct. Okay, okay, excellent. So, folks, we've been talking to Nancy Giacomimi and Jennifer Schrag uh, on their new book, Reframing Campus Conflict, Student Conduct Practice Through a Social Justice Lens. This can actually be uh, accessed through uh, Amazon.com. Um, the link is up on the website on the show page now. Uh, so thank you, thank you very much, Nancy and Jennifer, for joining us today. Thank I you, Penny. I so appreciate your time in, uh, in doing this. Thank you. You're welcome. So we're going to uh, start to close. Let me give you some information, folks. Uh, the Texas Conflict Coach, we air every two weeks for 30 to 45 minutes, starting at 6.30 p.m. Central Standard Excuse me, Central Standing. I can't even talk. <laughs> Central Standard Time. There we go. <laughs> uh, and starting in August, uh, we're going to begin our special elder care series and the kinds of conflict and strategies used to deal with family conflict as it pertains to the care and decisions uh, decision making regarding our elderly parents. So that's going to be the month of August and the month of September, and then we're going to focus on the elder care series. The other thing that I've been uh, talking about on the show is the Conflict Resolution Day, uh, which is celebrated around the world on October 15th. Uh, Conflict Resolution Day uh, was inspired by the Association for Conflict Resolutions Board resolution, and every third Thursday in October is the annual celebration. Now, if you want to get involved uh, or participate or do something around Conflict Resolution Day to honor that, uh, around the world, uh, go to www.acrnet.org to learn more about Conflict Resolution Day. I encourage our listeners to mark this show as a favorite by first registering as a listener to BTR. Uh, Blog Talk Radio will then send you an automatic update to your email uh, box reminding you of the next radio show time. You can also download the Texas Conflict Coach from iTunes. We would love for you to become a fan of the Texas Conflict Coach on Facebook. Uh, so just click there on the link on the show page. It will take you directly to Facebook. And you can also follow me on Twitter at Texas, and that would be TX Conflict Coach. So as we close, I want to thank you for joining us and supporting the show. I welcome your questions, comments, or feedback on Facebook or email me at pmporter. That's P-M-P-O-R-T-E-R at Conflict Connections, and that's C-O-N-F-L-I-C-T-C-O-N-N-E-C-T-I-O-N-S. That's, that's a long one, I know. P.M. Porter <laughs> at ConflictConnections.com. This is your host, Patty Porter, the Texas Conflict Coach. Remember, it's about empowering you to embrace conflict early. Thank you for listening to the Texas Conflict Coach. We hope you've enjoyed the program. You can find over 300 podcasts archived to listen at your own convenience at texasconflictcoach.com or download the podcast at iTunes or Stitcher Radio. To learn about upcoming radio programs and resources, sign up for our monthly e-newsletter.